Fake news media, the lying press, the enemy of the people. No, President Trump, the problem isn't fake news. The real problem is much worse. The rise and fall and rise again of the American journalist. We've got the scoop on this week's Jaffe Podcast. You're listening to the Jaffe Podcast, brought to you weekly by Jaffe Communications. Do Americans really trust the media? Increasingly not, according to a Gallup poll, which found that trust and confidence in mass media, such as newspapers, TV, and radio, has cratered. That's among all demographics, but especially among key groups like millennials and middle-aged Republicans. It's especially disturbing this distrust is now boiling over into violence in places like Charlottesville and Standing Rock, Berkeley, St. Louis, Montana, and Alaska. Scores of Democrats, including plenty right here in New Jersey, blame President Trump's campaign trail rhetoric. But the phenomenon is just not that simple. After all, our media is as vast and diverse as our country. So we brought Joe Strupp into the Jaffe Podcast Studio for an insider perspective. Joe is one of this country's most experienced media reporters, with three decades in newspapers, television, radio, and the Internet. And he's had huge names like President Bush, Rupert Murdoch, and Ben Bradley in his interview chair. His latest book, Killing Journalism, is a brutally honest look at the past, present, and the future of the free press and what it means for our democratic society. Joe, a very warm welcome to the Jaffe Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Good to be here. Yeah. And so right now, um, Joe doesn't know this, but we have two things in common. Uh-oh. And uh, what we have, because Joe and I, this is the first time we're meeting each other. Uh, the two things we have in common is he went to Brooklyn College. My mom went to Brooklyn College. Second is that he wrote for the Daily Journal, and I delivered the Daily Journal. So we are kin. <laughs> I like it. You know how many people – how many f- people I've met who or friends who I know whose mother went to Brooklyn College? They didn't go, but their mother. My friend Sam, one of my good friends, who's also a reporter, his mother went to Brooklyn College yeah. and played on the basketball team, he keeps telling me. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, my, that's great well, to know. Well, well, my mom, she went to Midwood High School, which, as which you know, is right, next, right, door, right, sure. right next door. Her and Woody Allen. Yep, yep. She graduated high school, and the next, I guess that fall, she just walked you know, down the street and boom. She was I have a couple friends student. who went to Midwood and Brooklyn. And they were like, I'm never leaving the neighborhood. Okay. I actually am from Summit. Uh-huh. So I had to travel a little bit and went to Brooklyn as one of the unusual out-of-staters. But I had a couple roommates who were from out-of-state. One was from Long, Long Island and one was from Rhode Island. And mm-hmm. we had an apartment and uh, just went to campus like anyone else. But it was a blast. Yeah. It was also a great place to learn about news because you met so many different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. When I went there in the 80s, you had people from every country almost. You had, and you had Jewish, black, Asian, white, Irish, Italian, mm-hmm. uh, people from different continents. We had uh, a soccer team that had people from Nepal on it and Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And also met a lot of people from different uh, income levels. Mm-hmm. People who were never, no one really rich went there right. because they could go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. They cost more probably. You had middle income, low income, mm-hmm. people who were living in public housing, yeah. people who were living. I mean, it was a real great place for a, a reporter to kind of learn about different ways of life after growing up in yeah. suburban New Jersey. Right, right. So so now you've been um, – you've had your journalism career now 30 years? Yes, I hit 30 years last July. Mm-hmm. I was lucky I got a job right 
uh, a month after college, mm-hmm. 1988, at the Daily Journal, mm-hmm. yep. which is no great longer pa- with us. Which was a great paper. That's great. Mm-hmm. And uh, were you in Is- Elizabeth? No, I grew up in Woodbridge. Grow? I grew up in Woodbridge. It and, still uh, was in Woodbridge in those well, days. Yeah, let's yeah. just say I didn't have a lot of customers. <laughs> it was on the edge. <laughs> I think on the edge of Woodbridge think, Railway, probably. Yeah, I think yeah. in Colonia and in Colonia, and, sure. Yeah, and they, get, I think they gave me the. Uh, the, the beat, so to speak, to, to deliver the paper because figured if I screwed up, it was only, again, the nine customers. That's good. But that was, and then I got my, uh, my big promotion. I then delivered the Star Ledger. I was a Star Ledger delivery boy yeah. briefly, which is funny because yeah. um, they did a nice uh, – they let me run my column on the, on, the, uh, on the book, which is not on their website. It's on my website, joestrup.com. Mm-hmm. But then they ran a nice review last week, yep. which is on their website. So Jacqueline, Jacqueline Cutler, Cutler, who yep. I give great, great thanks to. Mm-hmm. Although she called the head, the uh, title of the book something like incredibly long or something because of the oh, subhead, so which, which I agree with. It is long. No, but, but I like it. It's like I wanted got, to explain you, it. Yeah, you, we'll, we'll show this on our website so people know what we're talking about. But Killing Journalism has that like that New York Post. Yes, that was our publisher's font. idea to yeah. make it look like the Post and. Uh, we debated whether putting Trump on the cover or not, but that, I think that, it helps because yeah. it's not all about him, but most of it that's sort of newsy. And as I was writing it, he kept growing in importance in terms of his destruction of the news image. And even just this last week, screaming in all caps on Twitter that the New York Times is the enemy of the people more and more and more, which is a really frightening phrase. Against it, journalists, it, it 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 is, and I, I I want to talk to you about it. And and the other thing that's interesting is, isn't the New York Times circulation numbers like through the roof? Yes, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN—they've all increased viewership, readership since Trump came into office. Because, as we mentioned in the book, people want to get the straight dope mm-hmm. on him, and they know these are outlets that are, despite what he says, mm-hmm. accurate in most cases. They make mistakes mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. anyone else, mm-hmm. and they correct them. Uh, but not like some of the other outlets, like Fox yeah. and some of these real far-right places. Mm-hmm. They, so, yes, they are yeah. doing better because of Trump, mm-hmm. despite him thinking they're doing worse, which is sort right. of unusual, so, but not surprising. All right, so is it is should the book be titled Killing Journalism or Saving Journalism? Uh, I think we're still saving <laughs> it. I'm, I'm not completely lost mm-hmm. in my view of news, but I do think over the years where I worked, uh, I, like you said, I've been a reporter 30 years, but the last 18 or 19 have been mostly on media. Mm-hmm. I worked at Editor and Publisher Magazine mm-hmm. for 11 years, which covered the newspaper industry. Right. It went down, but we, it's still around in another form. It's more of a sort of a trade advertorial yeah, I used kind to, of I place. used to read it a lot. It yes. was like it was that in Columbia Journalism Review. Those yes. were the two. And the Columbia Journalism Review is still around. Thank I'm God. glad. Thank they're God. not doing great, but they're doing great work, though. Yeah. And ENP is around in more of a business side mm-hmm. creation, I think. And then I went to Media Matters for America, which is a nonprofit media watchdog outlet mm-hmm. that mostly focuses on conservative media. Mm-hmm. And they get a lot of heat because they openly say, we are keeping an eye on conservative media. Mm-hmm. But the work they do is basically fact-checking, bringing out the truth, mm-hmm. questioning sources, questioning the work of right-wing outlets. And I was very uh, pleased when I worked there that I never felt like I was pushing something that wasn't true. Right. Everything is checked out. It's actually better accuracy and fact-checking than a lot of mm-hmm. traditional news outlets. Mm-hmm. They really double down on making sure everything's mm-hmm. precise, confirmed. I've gone after stories that didn't have 
Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you know, we, we're not going with it. It's not there. It's not there. Let's yeah. find something else that is there. So, 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 so let me ask you. So you Mostly have, media-related yeah. stuff. Let, let me ask you. So you have these students at FDU and at your college, yes. and they want to be journalists. And you put them there. They, they've got wide God eyes. God help them. Right? God help them. They have wide eyes. They take notes. Everything you say is, mm-hmm. is the gospel. Do you say to them, um, you know, what, what are you thinking? What do you say? Do you how are you how do you encourage people to join a, a profession which, as noble as it is, it's kind of like a priest in which you're taking it was an oath of poverty. Well, I hope it's not that bad, <laughs> but I do say there's no illusions. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, a lot of students aren't going into journalism. Mm-hmm. They're taking. I usually teach media ethics, mm-hmm. which is a broad base between journalism and TV and entertainment and even public relations mm-hmm. and advertising. And that's a really fun course because mm-hmm. it gets into those areas. So a lot of students are taking that who want to go into advertising, marketing, mm-hmm. okay. public relations. I also taught television journalism last semester. Mm-hmm. Very similar there, although I had to really update it because what we consider television is really, you know, in your digital, cell phone. Digital, right? It's digital. It's yeah. online. It's on iPad. It's yeah. on your hand, handheld device. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the basics are the same. A lot mm-hmm. of the basics of shooting and editing and interviewing mm-hmm. uh, are very traditional right right. um and i'm also teaching social justice journalism Mm -hmm. and that's a really interesting one because it's talking about using news as a way to improve society to Mm -hmm. go after social issues whether it's going back to the american revolution and thomas Paine or the civil rights Mm -hmm. or even today immigrant rights and gay rights and i'm going to do a a section i'm really excited about on the catholic church scandal Mm -hmm. and when the Boston Globe broke that story out mm-hmm. of Boston mm-hmm. in the early 2000s, which eventually became the movie Spotlight, mm-hmm. uh, I was able to cover that for E&P, and it was very interesting to cover what the So what you the covered the Boston through. Globe's coverage of the scandal. Right, and what we did at Editor mm-hmm. and Publisher is cover the news industry, and my part of it was mostly newsroom-related. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of coverage. I used to cover the Pulitzer Prizes every year, which I still wow, love. that's so cool. That's one of the great hopeful things for me is to see what comes out of the Pulitzers because – more and more every year, you get you still get a great treasure trove of great working journalism. Yep. And now the Pulitzers are beyond just newspapers. They now accept websites, and they also accept magazines, mm-hmm. which The New Yorker has won a few based on a lot of their mm-hmm. coverage of the sexual harassment and sexual abuse cases that have mm-hmm. come up. And still the traditional newspapers are doing it. And a lot of these websites, Inside Climate News is a great mm-hmm nonprofit site mm-hmm. out of Brooklyn that mm-hmm. won a few years ago. And so there's a lot of areas that are still journalism, but you're right. I do tell them um, a lot of them don't want to go into journalism, and that's fine, but they should know about journalism. They mm-hmm. should know. See, a lot of people who like to comment, especially in this social media world where everyone has an opinion and mm-hmm. they tweet it and they Facebook it, mm-hmm. they love to comment on newspapers and news outlets and journalists doing their job when they don't understand how they do their job. Mm -hmm. They think everything is slanted. Everyone wants to slant the news a certain way. And I argue that I think most journalists who are true journalists don't want to do that. They want to get the, they want to get the word out that we pride ourselves on being accurate, on being fair, on Mm -hmm. getting, getting the goods on a corrupt person in power, whether it's uh, right wing, left wing, somewhere in the middle, but it's abuse of power, whether it's a politician or a priest or a public official in another realm or a teacher mm-hmm. or whoever it might be. And I think to, what I try to tell students and others is you really have to have the bug, the journalism right. bug, and have the calling even. One of my 
colleagues uses that term, mm-hmm. like a priest or like someone else. Yeah. And really want to, you've got to have that drive because otherwise you're not going to be able to do the job completely and find you really have to find an interesting angle or story in anything. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, I'm just a nosy were you, were person. Were you? Were you about you before we went on the air? You were about to mention Jimmy Breslin, so I thought you were yeah. going to talk about Kennedy. Um, I didn't know where you were going to go with yes, that, but you I assume you're going to talk about, about Kennedy. Um, there was, you know, the great uh, I think it's HBO documentary yeah, on Jimmy was, Breslin and Pete Hamill, which I would strongly recommend. I was lucky enough to interview Breslin a few times, really, um, just by the phone. But I never got him in was person. He, he seemed to me to be so – if you didn't like your question, he would just hang up. Or well, I was always to... asking about – I think one time I did a story on um, – there was an enemies list. I don't think it was Trump because I think this was before Trump. Because he hated Trump. Right. And he also doesn't like the Catholic Church. He wrote mm-hmm. several articles. He was raised Irish Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did not like the Catholic Church. Wrote a few books. Uh, one of them is really good called The Church That Forgot Christ. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a really good book about mm-hmm. a, a parish in Brooklyn that went corrupt. Mm-hmm. But I would call him for different issues. I would just sort of get his opinion on things, and he was always nice. Um, but in this documentary, he and Pete Hamler are, are, uh, are profiled, and it talks about mm-hmm. the old days of the tabloids yep. in New York, which a lot of people today don't know about. Mm-hmm. And actually, I had Pete Hamill's book, A Drinking Life, for mm-hmm. a couple of years, and I never got to it, and I've been starting to read it now mm-hmm. because of that. But Breslin, yeah, one of his famous – he had two famous uh, columns. I think go into this in the in the documentary – uh, the first one, when John Kennedy was killed, he was working, I believe, for the Herald, the New York Herald Tribune. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want to make sure. I think it, I think it was. And he was sent to Washington, as a million other reporters were. And he wrote a story about the grave digger, the man who was going to dig Kennedy's grave. He was, uh, I believe, an immigrant mm-hmm. who worked several jobs. And he, Kennedy was killed on a Friday, November 22nd, and buried on Monday. So the grave was to be dug on the Sunday, February, I'm sorry, November 24th. And Breslin found out who the grave digger was, went to his home, interviewed him on the morning of, and it was this great story yeah. about how he was very proud. Yeah. He wanted to, and I actually have used that in a writing class I did last year at Rutgers about finding the alternate story, mm-hmm. finding yep. the other side. Yeah, 300 other reporters yeah. covering that funeral. I mean, that's been, you know, and also that came... Uh, a day after Breslin got the scoop where he had interviewed the emergency room doctor. Yes, who tried that was to another sa- great scoop. Who tried to save Kennedy's life yes. and Jackie Onassis against the uh, the wall. So he was running around. He was in Dallas. But amazing. He was in Washington. But, uh, he was in New York. But, uh, he- but, but, but uh, you know, absolutely amazing. Let's fast forward because I do want to spend some yeah. time on this book. And um, what – first of all, what prompted it? You know, and well – because everybody's got a Trump book, okay? So when you this started, is not a Trump book, though. Tell tell us. Trump's only part of the book. Mm-hmm. He's about twenty five percent. Okay. Uh, most of it is over the years that I've been covering media, I have had to cover the cutbacks just consistently. Yes. Cuts, cuts, cuts. I used to do an end of the year column every year, editor and publisher, top ten newspaper industry stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you, do you see them similarly in other industries? You know, mm-hmm. and. Most of the time, the top one or two stories uh, story was cutbacks, mm-hmm. job cuts. I mean, hundreds, thousands a year in the newspaper industry, slash, slash, slash. And a lot of it was due to a combination of things, starting with the Internet coming in, mm-hmm. taking a lot of classified advertising from newspapers, mm-hmm. the Internet also putting up free news, mm-hmm. and newspapers 
following but not charging, yep. thinking they had to put up free news mm-hmm. when they weren't going to make money that way. Mm-hmm. And then the ad shift, and then there was a several recessions in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. late 1990s. A lot of department stores went out. Yes. <laughs> department stores went out. Google came in. Facebook came in. Amazon came in. Mm-hmm. And it was all these things converging together. And corporations started leveraging to buy up newspapers. A lot of newspapers used to be owned by small chains or families. Mm-hmm. Most of them are not. Mm-hmm. So they're, when they were owned by small chains or families, 8 to 10 to 12% profit margin was fine. Now they're owned by uh, Gannett mm-hmm. or uh, Digital First. H- hedge funds. Yep. Hedge funds run them. Uh, mm-hmm. Digital First, which used to be Media News, which mm-hmm. used to be the owner of the Daily Journal and another paper I worked for in California, the Argus, which is part of the uh, Bay Area News Group, mm-hmm. they are leveraged to the hilt, and they have to make 20, 25, 30% profits. In How print, do you do in that? Print, in print newspapers. You're cutting, cutting, cutting. And then it spreads to the rest of the news world when you have websites, when you have cable channels, yeah. and they're getting the audience. They're 24 hours. They're filling it with whatever they can. They're also having to cut, and they don't really cover news in depth. Like they used to. So I was watching all this for over years. And then before even Trump came along, people would have the constant claim that newspapers and reporters are all slanted left. They're all lefties. They're all liberal. Everything's biased. And I don't agree with that. I think I there either. is some bias yep. on all sides. But I, like I said before, I think most journalists want to do a good job. They're covering mm-hmm. good news. So I wanted to kind of counter all this. Mm-hmm. and And I also was looking at issues like Breaking news. Everything's breaking news now. We overcover. Actually, that doesn't even mean anything. Anymore. I know. It doesn't mean anything. We overcover everything. Yeah. We undercover other things. We have no ombudsman anymore in the mm-hmm. news business. There are only two that I know of in national news outlets, NPR and uh, PBS, mm-hmm. which happen to be nonprofit, which mm-hmm. is interesting. New York Times public editor came and went. Mm-hmm. The Washington Post, I do a long history on ombudsman going mm-hmm. back to the Louisville Courier Journal and mm-hmm. how an ombudsman helped them. Also, a lot of legal protection issues. Mm-hmm. Newspapers and news outlets are tightening the belt. They don't have the money for legal protection like they used to. They also don't have the money to file lawsuits and demand for information because the cutback on dissemination of public information from public outlets, whether it's the federal government or your local school board, is tighter and tighter. They don't have the time or money to demand access to records that they used to get. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge back. This is something I didn't expect. There's a huge backlog in federal freedom of information requests, some going back to the 90s. Mm-hmm. The thing, and I think everything you said there is, is, is spot on. Um, the one thing that I want to add is that reporters now are not creating relationships. True. Um, and why I think that's a big deal that's a is, very good is, point. is that Oprah requests. Yes. I think that Oprah requests, I think that um, – it, it uh, I don't know how that helps. I, I, I understand the need for it, but it's like you know the town clerk. Oh, I got another Oprah request from blah blah blah. Like it's it's, you know, when I was a reporter and probably when you were, it was all, hey mayor, I want to find out what's going on with this. Can I get this? Oh yeah, talk to Joe down on you know third floor because reporters would hang out in town hall. Oh yeah, I used to. sure. You hung out in town. I mean, the thing is Police now police station rep- too. Yeah, reporters are now doing things via email. 
you know, that, you know, we're a PR firm, so we'll have a reporter who will, one of the most lazy things a reporter can do will email me and say, get me a quote from your client on X, on this mm -hmm. topic or that. So basically the reporter is basically saying to me, spin it whatever way you want, and I'm not going to have the um, opportunity to give any type of counter questioning, and I'm just going to run whatever you put. Mm -hmm. It's such lazy journalism. Now – now I'm going to go on my, my, my soapbox But in here. some cases, don't, doesn't your client want that? Don't they want well, It's great that? for my client, but as a, as a guy who's – Oh, you're looking as, at it from as, the as other a, side. I, look, I well, like that. As a news purist, sure. it's, it's, it's very disheartening yeah. because when I was a reporter and probably you too, I mean it was a lot of our stuff was pick up the phone or drive down to town hall. Yeah. It wasn't like this like sterile email um, exchange. Um, but again, I think that that's one of the reasons why – you know, FOIA requests are through the roof and OPA requests yeah. are through the roof because they see that as hard-hitting journalism when the whole basis of missing – of losing that one-on-one -on -one relationship. Yeah, I think, there's a, I think there is a division between the two though. Mm -hmm. I think there are things you have to file an OPA request or a FOIA yeah. for. But not everything. There are a lot of times that people will do it even though they don't have to because they think it's the easy or the only way when in reality if you call somebody or if you go over – and talk to them. You can get information. You can find out from one person where to get. You, you build up that relationship. I agree. Absolutely. When, when I was, I had, I got my master's in journalism from NYU. Nice. And one of the, thank you. <laughs> one of the, one of the um, assignments from the professor was pick any landmark building in Manhattan, any building that you want. Mm -hmm. And it can't be a, it can't be a church. Um, because but, they're and, under a different yeah, yeah. world. You can yeah. see where I'm going with this. Any building, find out from day one who owned that building over the years. That's a great, great From assignment. like, you know, 18, you know, so you go to New York City Hall. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at like, honestly, the dusty shelves in the basement and the microfiche and everything from like 1820. Sure. You're trying to figure out what happened with this, who built it, how much did it cost? And the, and the assignment was, tell us everything you can tell us about this building. That's great. 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 And the thing is, is that fast forward to today, how many working journalists are able to do that task or even know that that information is available yes. to them? And because there's no editor who is saying to them, because a lot of the, these shoestring newspapers yes. don't have editors. You have, you have fewer editors. You have fewer copy editors. You have fewer people doing more Few, work. Fewer um, institutional knowledge. Yes. And you also have the constant deadline. There's, there's no deadline yeah. anymore. Every minute is a deadline. When I was at the Daily Journal, I had usually till six. It was an afternoon paper, wasn't it? It was an afternoon. It paper? was, but we didn't really operate that way. We our deadlines were for the morning because they also had, they had morning newsstand but afternoon delivery. Got it. Got um, it. Maybe one of the reasons it didn't last, but we, you know, you I had, think, <laughs> you had till six o'clock, seven o'clock deadline to do your yeah. story or in our day, or I'm sure for you more than one story, probably mm -hmm. a day, mm -hmm, Sure. Uh, but you had time to call, recheck, rewrite, edit, re-edit, double check, ask another question. But now something breaks and they rush it out. It's probably not written very well. It's not edited very well. It's not fact checked very well. I have several examples in the book about stories that were rushed out from, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing to election night 2000 to election night 2004 to uh, overseas coverage to 
people saved from catastrophes who weren't yeah. saved, on and on and on. Some of that is not a surprise because, I mean, we were eventually going to get to this point in technology where we were going to have constant coverage. We already had it on the radio over the years. If something broke, you'd hear it. Right. Somewhat on TV if something big happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I show my students the Kennedy assassination uh, bulletins from Walter Cronkite, mm-hmm. which yeah. were unusual. Now they break into the news, uh, the regular programming with – mundane news there was something in 2016 they broke into at least cbs and abc network afternoon soap operas or whatever was on saying that joe biden had announced that he had picked a date when he would announce he was going (laughs) to run for president that was the announcement and even if he wasn't going to run for president is that breaking into a daytime regular network programming for right no, today everything. I, I, is. I, and that's why I think that journalism professors like yourself are uh, invaluable, who can give perspective that was before the internet age, and and I think that you know having that perspective of somebody who you know would have to actually go. You couldn't just Google background for story. You had to go into your morgue yeah. and figure it out, and um, and then and then you can give these these kids like really some real perspective. And that's one of the things that is, I think, a positive of the Internet. I look at the Internet as a kind of a necessary evil. There's a lot of negative things that come, but there's also a lot of positive. I mean, I did most of my research, other than interviews and my own background, from the Internet. I dug up old stories. I emailed people questions. I dug up facts and figures and data. And it's all – I mean, that's a great thing. But you're right. A lot of people don't realize, a lot of journalists don't realize, you can file these requests. You can get this data. You can get this information. I had an editor who was big on find out what it costs. Mm -hmm. What does it cost? What does it make? How many jobs are being created by whatever Mm -hmm. the project is? Mm -hmm. How many, you know, what what did it cost 10 years ago? What did it cost last year? This class at York, we're we're doing a segment on municipal corruption as Mm -hmm. a social justice item. Mm -hmm. And... We, I assigned to them, file a freedom of information request. Mm-hmm. A lot of them didn't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's find something, what would be interesting. And they immediately found different ideas at the York campus, mm-hmm. at the CUNY campuses. Mm-hmm. One was elevator and escalator maintenance. They say the elevator and escalators are always broken. Mm-hmm. It's okay, okay. Find out who you can send a request to. Find, and they said, oh, yeah, let's find out what was spent on elevator, escalator maintenance each mm-hmm. of the last five years. Right. What was the... Overall it's a good story. budget, good story. Has it gone up? Has it gone down? <laughs> Another one I talked about uh, health ratings in the cafeterias. Mm-hmm. The A, B, and C ratings are New York's, which only came into existence a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Every restaurant in New York has to put it in their window. A is good, B is a, mm-hmm. not great, mm-hmm. C is whatever. And so they were coming up with the ideas, and I said, you know, you can file for this information. They're really wow, and you don't have to be a reporter to do it. No, it's all for the average person. Exactly. Um, but you're right. There are places that push back. There are places I filed with. I live in Maplewood, mm-hmm. and I used to cover Maplewood. I had a website called maplewoodian.com, and I would file for requests all the time. And sometimes they the pushback, but most of the time the town was, this is part of our job. Let's very, do it. Yeah, very uh, liberal town, Maplewood. Yes, and very good uh, administratively. They, re- they knew what the job was, is so why a- fight with a reporter when you got work yeah, to do? That, you do the is work. Is that Mayor DeLuca? Mayor Vic DeLuca, he's yeah, he's, uh, he's a good mayor. He's been uh, ten years this term, and he was about three years the first term. Mm-hmm. And he's everywhere. Yeah, he's a very involved mayor. And I got a lot of media for his uh, crosswalk, his rainbow crosswalk. Yes, he, <laughs> they were very, very leading gay rights uh, town. Mm-hmm. Early on, they did one of the first. 
they did an all-day gay wedding. Uh, oh, when uh, it was first legal? The first day it was legal, which I believe was a Saturday. Mm-hmm. They opened Town Hall on Saturday, which they don't usually have. And he did several weddings in the morning, and then it was basically open. If you wanted to get married, gay or straight, but it was mostly for the gay weddings, they came in and they would just do the weddings. And then at the end of the day, he did a mass wedding out on the front steps, about 30 couples, which was really fun to watch. Oh, really? That is cool. And they do a big Pride Day thing there every year. and um, So they've been very out front on that Mm -hmm. issue. And for the most part, it's gone over well. Plus, Maplewood, ha- Maplewood has a lot of media folk, a lot of authors, reporters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Montclair, Maplewood. Yes, we're kind of the media. Yeah. Although I'm partial to Maplewood yeah. because – but although we don't have Montclair State, which has a really great media what they've organization. Got, and, and that was actually very interesting is what they built at Montclair State yes. is stunning and gorgeous. But it was interesting is like in that current state of the industry for yeah. someone to say, let's spend yes. millions on this, but – I think it really escalated what's offered at Montclair. Yeah, and I wrote a big, actually, a big piece for New Jersey Monthly on that years ago. I've done, um, I don't know, about two dozen articles for New Jersey Monthly over the years. Last year, uh, the last one was on the proliferation of youth club sports teams and how mm-hmm. they're diminishing the regular recreation programs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them I do on media, some are not. I have another one hopefully coming up. Later this year, at the New Yorker, Margaret Sullivan at the Washington Post, Clarence Page. Uh, Clarence Page is w- really one of the nicer big names. Steve Scully is a, a, a friend from C-SPAN who is their Washington Journal mm-hmm. producer. He also they uh, did a segment for me on Book TV when I did an appearance at a bookstore in Maplewood, and that's on the Book TV C-SPAN site mm-hmm. if you want to watch it. But Blair, I only interviewed him a few times and sent him the book. And he said, "Let me I'll, if I have a chance, I'll look at it. And then out of nowhere, about Boom. two weeks later, I got this email. He said, I did a good job, which I'll, yeah. I'll take from him. Yeah. And wrote some nice stuff. And I was very, uh, very heartfelt because he's one of my, you know, that's like uh, Reggie Jackson telling me I can hit a baseball. Yeah, because absolutely. Because he's really, I'm very, uh, very pleased and surprised that, that he said, and he doesn't have to say anything nice about me. He doesn't. Well, you like he the book. He doesn't say anything about anyone. Yeah. So, so let's talk for a second. So the, um, the book, after people read it, what do you want them to come away with? I think I want them to know that it's sort of two approaches. Killing journalism is saying that there's a lot of real journalism that's not being done mm-hmm. like it used to be. Agreed. Agreed. We don't have enough people doing it. We don't give them enough time or tools to do it. We have a president who's bashing them from day one mm-hmm. with false claims. Mm-hmm. There is much about, in the column I wrote for the Star-Ledger, I think the headline was something like, uh, no, President Trump, the problem isn't fake news. Mm-hmm. The real problem's much worse. Mm-hmm. And the much worse problem is we have fewer people doing journalism. We give them less time to do it. We give them less, fewer tools to do it. Mm-hmm. We don't believe them when they do it because our president is leading the charge. I mean, calling the, the enemy of the people, that's such a... Misstatement and 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 horrible attack, and we've already seen abuse on reporters, not only at his rallies but in other places because of what he puts forth. But it's not all him; it's problems we've had before that. It's laws that are stricter on reporters. It's not giving them the access. Things like credentialing. What I go into the book about a lot of news outlets because of cutbacks are using freelancers. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done freelancing. I mm-hmm. do freelancing. A lot of places have freelancers because they can't afford full time. Mm-hmm. Well, freelancers have a lot more difficulty getting credentialed mm-hmm. for Congress, mm-hmm. for events, mm-hmm. for going 
right. to auto accidents and police issues. Mm-hmm. Just that kind of simple effect of being a freelancer versus a staff mm-hmm. person is a detriment to the news because mm-hmm. they can't cover the news the way they used to. Right. There's also a lot of fear coverage. We jump on the quick, easy story, whether it's celebrity, whether it's fear. You know, there's a there's a health scare of the week. It was mm-hmm. Ebola. Before mm-hmm. that, it was swine flu. Right. Now we also have fear of getting some disease that hasn't even really hurt us. Yeah. New Jersey really uh, put its foot in Chris Christie's mouth during the Ebola scare when both New Jersey and <laughs> New York yeah. kept this the one nurse, nurse yep. from, I mean, it was just scare tactics. And now we see with vaccines, there's been a, and I go into that in the book about the scare against vaccines that dates back decades that caused many parents not to vaccinate their children. And we're seeing a rise in measles. We're seeing a rise in mumps. We're seeing a rise in uh, smallpox in some pockets of the country. And again, it's scaring people with wrong information. And a lot of it is because they also look at sites online that really have no credibility. Everything online is given equal footing. The New York Times website, InfoWars, Mm -hmm. and XYZ website are on the same space. And people will believe anything that's out there. And people share it all on social media. Well, you're talking about the, all you're doing is talking about the 2016 election. I mean, but that's, it goes that's, beyond that. Yeah, but that's where you saw it that's you a know, big in part full force. And Facebook more and more. It's it's going to be interesting to see with this election of 2020. You know, how I'm much. C- I'm cynically hopeful. I mean, it's four years later. Things have advanced technologically, which I mean that some of the nonsense is hopefully going to be gone. But I think that people are going to find even new uh, ways of creating nonsense. And um, I just I just hope that, you know, it's like back in the day, two people can stand up. I believe in this. You believe in that. Yeah. Whoever you, you know, vote who, who, whoever you like. But no, <laughs> it's it, it doesn't happen that way. Um, so um, is this now, and this is uh, my ignorance, but is no, this no. your first book or how many of these books have you I read? actually wrote a novel about 2001 which was based on a lot of the – I worked in San Francisco for seven years mm-hmm. and covered journalism and uh, city government, which mm-hmm. was really interesting. Yeah. And I wrote a novel based on that that didn't do well because it wasn't really edited well and it was distributed poorly. So I, we may – I'm talking to the publisher of this book about reissuing that. Mm-hmm. And it might even be a little better because it looks at the early 90s when I was there and when things were a little different in the news business, right, right. not only for California and San Francisco, it's a lot livelier. San Francisco it had different independent papers. It had two really great weekly papers. There was no internet. There was no cell phone. There was no Twitter, no online. Mm-hmm. So the, the newspapers really drove the news. Yes. And they also, California has very, San Francisco and California have very colorful political characters. Mm-hmm. Kamala Harris, who's mm-hmm. a big name in the, mm-hmm. Uh, Democratic uh, candidates for president pool. She was district attorney in San Francisco. She came in a little bit after I left, but she, I believe, was still in the district attorney's office when I was there. And the, the city is still one of my favorite cities for a lot it of is, reasons. Absolutely. But that was a novel. I, I'm hopefully going to reissue that. And I'm also working on another book about a murder in my family. My uh, great aunt was murdered. 1962 by her husband who also killed two of their children and himself in their home in South Dakota. Oh my God. Yeah. You're the Strupp family. It wasn't the Strupp. My mother's side of the family, the Snyders. Oh my God. As my mother's grandmother was Peggy Snyder, Uh 
Uh, her maiden name was Connolly, and she had uh, three brothers and two sisters. Uh-huh. One of her sisters was the woman who was murdered mm-hmm. by her husband, and the other sister died uh, four months later. Was this the, uh, the tabloid sensation of the Dakotas? Uh, it, it didn't get a lot of coverage, which is part of this sort of this story, is it was sort of a family secret for many years. I didn't learn about it till about 10 years ago. And then uh, I was doing some oral history recording of my aunts last summer during a family reunion. And I was interviewing them about their lives growing up in this little town in Minnesota where they grew up. And uh, I just kept asking about this, this yeah. murders. And then I started finding people who knew the couple and the family. And interestingly, I was looking back at the newspapers of the time. In, in, it's Rapid City, South Dakota, which is right next to Ra- Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. And... The newspapers, at least in this case, maybe in most, they would run stories on the funerals that included all the pallbearers. So I tracked down a lot of the pallbearers who were still there. Oh, my God. I tracked down the priest who gave last rites <laughs> at the home. It was a Sunday morning, that, and there were two guests staying in the house in the basement who were visiting who were not murdered and who woke up and found the bodies. I f- found them and interviewed found them. them. Wow. And so I'm trying to sort of put it all together. And another thing was all the police reports. It's yeah, pretty wild. All the police reports <laughs> from the murders were lost in a flood. Rapid City had a horrible, destructive flood in 1972. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of trying to put all the pieces together. But it's it's I'm starting to form it, and it's it's sounding more and more interesting. And I'm also talking to experts about uh, the men who just you know kill their families you probably are aware of the john list case now you covered Westfield. the john list case yes i covered the end of it um a very good reporter at the daily journal marianne spoto who yes is, who is now at the yeah. uh, star ledger no uh, she's with the state that's right she did leave the ledger yeah, she, uh, she covered the trial yeah but she, i got to cover some pieces of it and i also covered the verdict which, you know, verdict in that trial you oh put all hands God. on deck yeah um but john list who killed his uh, three children and his wife and his mother, but did not kill himself, unlike my great uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, he escaped and disappeared from 1971 to 1989, and he was found in Virginia after America's Most Wanted yep. ran the story. Yeah. With another family. He's- yes, he had been remarried, uh, new wife, knew nothing about it. Um, I got on the case when that ran, before they even caught him, I interviewed the former police chief of Westfield Mm -hmm. and he had still sort of that was the one sort of unsolved case that always Mm -hmm. lingered in his mind and he carried a clipping in his wallet and so I did a story on when America's Most Wanted did the story I did a story on him and what it meant to him and Westfield and the show at the time did an unusual thing where they created a bust of what he might look like Mm -hmm. 18 years later and then a co-worker in Virginia watched the show and recognized him, turned him in. He went on trial, was found guilty, uh, sentenced to life in prison, and he actually died in prison a few mm-hmm. years ago. Yep. Um, I remember that everybody around here, we're in Cranford, everybody around here knows the, uh, the John yeah, List and case. Yeah, and let me tell you, the, the Daily Journal was, was ground zero for the pool coverage, for oh the my photos. God. My friend Kathy Friedrich, who was our photo editor, was just scrambling every... And this What's is that? pre-digital, yeah, you know? Was, was Robert O'Leary the... Assistant prosecutor who dealt, dealt with that the media. That sounds right. Yeah. That sounds right. I, I worked with Marianne in the Union County Courthouse for a couple of years. Where did you do in the courthouse? Uh, well, I covered Elizabeth for the Star-Ledger. 
and she covered the courts. I think I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. So we hung out together for a couple of years, oh, yeah, and she was she was fantastic. No, she's a, she was fantastic. She's a good lady and great reporter. Oh, and there's yeah. actually, I just was when I was talking to another uh, friend of mine who's authored books on women who are killed by their husbands. I'm using some of her insight for the book. I was looking up online. There's a there was a new book on list that came out last year. A new book. Yeah, I think there's been at least two or three, and there was a big uh, television uh, TV movie with Robert Blake, ironically, mm-hmm. considering yep. that he was on trial later yep, for his yep, own yep. Uh, But Robert Blake issues. is much better looking than uh, John List. John List was a, uh, <laughs> quite a gaunt man. Uh, but the book that came out last year, and I'm forgetting who the author is, he, oh, his, his name is Joe Shakey or Sharkey. I think he's written several murder books. I think he kind of came in... He's not from here, but I started reading a little of it online. I'm going to have to get it because he writes very well. He also has some great insights about, I guess he interviewed friends of the kids because it opens up with the daughter being brought home by the police and him screaming and calling her names. And oh, my God. He was a very troubled Dunk. And he was this big religious guy, and yeah. he uh, taught Sunday school. Yeah. But the uh, one of the quick interesting things is after the trial, I interviewed jurors and most of them pointed to a letter he had written that he had left behind, mm-hmm. confessing. It was a letter to he the left priest. It, he left oh, to not in his house, because then he set he the house on fire. House. No, no, house. the house caught fire later. Oh, yeah. Okay. He, what he did is he set things up to make it seem like they were still living there. He, yes, he told okay, the, yep, I remember. He told the schools it, so that they were going on a trip. And, yep. So no one really knew about it for days, weeks. Right? Yep, yep. No one knew about it for several weeks, and then apparently... There was, I guess, the kids never got back from school, or an alarm went off, something, and the police went in, and music was on, like this really uh, freak, like classical music was playing. All the bodies were laid out. It was a very eerie scene. But he had this, you know, two-week head start. It was also 1971, so you could probably disappear a little mm-hmm. easier than today because yep. there's so many ways they can change find your ID now. immediately. It was before photo driver's licenses. Yes. You, could, you could be anyone. And you know, he just looked like a typical middle-aged man. He was, uh, yeah, but he had money problems. He was an accountant, and he really had this ongoing religious view that the children were all going to go to hell because the world was such a corrupt place. So he had to kill them to save them. I mean, mm. yeah, oh, uh, it's very freaky. And then they did catch him, though. And, Thank God. But they didn't Brought catch my great uncle because he killed himself. But a lot of his story, he had also been in a mental hospital three times and I actually got the records hmm. I got the state hospital records for hmm. him so I'm trying to get those examined by someone who knows psychiatry and crime better than me <laughs> so there's still a lot but a lot of the basic story I've I've uh, I've dug up and I'm really excited to try to put it together yeah. which is going to be yeah. a challenge but fun do, do me a favor tell our listeners how they can buy this tremendous yes. book of yours you can go to amazon.com mm-hmm. or barnesandnoble.com mm-hmm. Or if you like independent bookstores like I do, mm-hmm. you can go to them and ask them to order it. Mm-hmm. It's available in all those areas. I also have ones that I'm selling. I'm going to be at a couple events at local colleges. Um, some of them are limited only to the college students, though. Sure. But online is the best way. Or if you want to email me, what's the, what's the email? At, uh, Joe Strupp at Outlook dot com. Mm-hmm. Go to my website, Joe Strupp dot com. I'll get you a copy that will be autographed. Ooh, all right. Um, so there's, there's plenty of ways to get it. All right. And uh, you can also read the review in the Star Ledger. Just search my name and yep. Jacqueline Cutler, who was 
is a top-notch and, reviewer. And by the way, that's how we found you. I've, I've, oh, read, your, I've, I've read your column a bunch of times. Oh, and I, over, I was having Cheerios a couple of mornings ago, and I read the Jacqueline Cutler piece on you, and I've been like, you know, I'd love to have this guy oh, come in. thank you. And I emailed you. You, don't, you did. You barely know me or didn't know me, I and you, you still came in. And I, I hope it was a, a good experience for you. No, this is with great, us. and I'm glad I didn't know about your Elizabeth uh, and Daily Journal background. <laughs> my, my, uh, my former career in Brooklyn College. Is, yeah. is yeah. mother your mother still with us? Yes. Yep. Yep. Tell her. Uh, you know, Tell her Joe says hi. They're not the Kingsmen anymore. They, <laughs> they used to be the Kingsmen. Now they're the Eagles. Oh, Brooklyn the Brooklyn Eagles. College Perfect. Eagles. Perfect. Perfect. I actually went to a basketball game a couple of weeks ago with a friend, and I was surprised how well they played. Division yeah. three. Yeah, you know what? They're in. Hey, you know what? Division three is pretty damn good. It was it was a fun game. They had a good passing game, and they beat uh, I believe it was City College. There you go. All right. Well, listen. Well, thank you. Uh, we're here with Joe Strupp, um, and again, his book, "Killing Journalism," and I get I love this subhead: how greed, laziness, and Donald Trump are destroying news, and how we can save it. Yes, Joe. Not, not long, not completely <laughs> without hope. Okay, Joe. Thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you so much. The Jaffe Podcast is a production of Jaffe Communications, which is solely responsible for its content. Episodes may not be reproduced or rebroadcast without permission. Our executive producer is Jonathan Jaffe. Our editor and production manager is Josh Frank. And our theme song was composed by David Siste. For more episodes, visit jaffecom.com or find us on Facebook at Jaffe Communications. Thanks for listening. Join us next week.